Welcome to Hearthside Salons, talks and conversations to feed your creative fire. I'm Heidi Hornbacher of Pagecraft Writing. Each week we bring you a guest worth listening to. How will the world look when we come out of this pandemic crisis? How could it look? I wanted to talk to my friend, British entrepreneur and Emmy-nominated writer-producer Paul Goodenough to get some ideas. He has an origin story like a graphic novel hero, and thankfully, he's using his power for good. He's using the power of story to speak for the planet. Just speaking, not in terms of like COVID, not in terms of how other people are suffering, but just talking about lockdown. Just that chance to step off the train and actually just think a little bit and just have a bit of space yeah so grateful for that I really am it just feels I don't know I'm kind of looking at the world in a very different way now and I'm seeing that the world doesn't need to necessarily be as tied to travel and location as it previously did so yeah for me it's it, it, it's open-minded more than I thought it would have so I'm grateful for some parts sure well I think we have to be I mean I think we have to look there otherwise it's just a whole bunch of suffering <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I wanted to start just by talking about like your childhood. Like what was it like when you were a kid? What kind of what kind of expectations were there for you or what did you think for yourself? Well, um I grew up in the 80s and I was never really uh in tune with how the world was laid out to me. Um so I come from a working class family. My dad um, worked in automobiles mostly, so either as a mechanic or a, a test driver at some points. Wow. And my brother was um, very much kind of like a guy's son, you know, so my dad and my brother were very close. And I was absolutely not that. <laughs> you know, I was sitting in the corner drawing. I was lost in my mind. My childhood was mostly trying to ignore reality mm. you know, trying to pretend that this path that was laid out in front of me was inevitably what I was going to do yeah so basically being a kid um going to a working class school it was I'm positive true to say for everybody if you tried hard your life was hell <laughs> so and if you were at the top of the class or if you were very diligent in your work and you tried hard it was it was hell so um, what I learned very quickly was never stand out. <laughs> just, uh, just do your best to fly under that radar and, don't, and just be just below the people who kind of get noticed. So if you've got some people who are going to get the good grades, just be below. So you, um, you give yourself the tall poppy syndrome. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I've been, I mean, chopping myself down. That's why I'm so short. <laughs> Normally in the high six foots, of course. And my childhood was very much just a lot of, yeah, sort of, lot of ruining my expectations of what the world should be. Just loads of stuff that just, when I was young, I was thinking, this is not the way the world is supposed to be. Um, you know, the, the good guys or the good women always got knocked down. You tried hard. It didn't, didn't work out well for you because, you know, everyone would just be attacking you and you'd be a target for other people. And I looked ahead and saw adults um, who were doing well when they weren't necessarily the best people. So I think actually... For me, the 80s were, were a very confusing time um, and a very depressing time. 
Well, it was a very uh, consumer consumer driven time as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but at the same time, there's such amazing things. So in that, when I shut myself away from the world and I tried to ignore reality, I found I found just the incredible power of story and comics and toys. And my room is testament to I've got like G.I. Joe's, Transformers, Avengers stuff. And in those worlds, I found uh, just, just something that made sense to me, something that spoke to me. I found the... Um, I found that the power of story was was more true to me than the power of reality. So I sunk into that. And then I, I kind of, I think I regressed into myself until I was about 18. Um, and all I did with my time was gem just, just be soaking in these stories and writing little stories for myself on like little notebooks that were just cram packed full of drawings and writing. And um, then when I was uh, towards late 17s, um, 17, 17, um, <laughs> My uh, parents broke up um, and um, because my dad moved out, uh, my mum basically needed some help with the mortgage. I then started needing to work, which meant I couldn't go to university. And although that could be seen as quite a negative thing, for me, that was the probably the kick that I needed because then I pulled myself out of this quite introverted, quite uh, depressed person who was just focused only on story to engaging with the real, real world. And uh, I founded my first company, uh, which was a web company. And that went from strength to strength. Um, within sort of 10 years, we went from just being myself as a bit of a hobby to having uh, over 20 staff from now over 30 staff. And uh, we've got clients like BBC, CNN, Warner Brothers, Cartoon Network, those sorts of things. And we work for governments and any number of uh, really helpful and really powerful projects for charity. So yes, yeah, so I don't know if I've covered much there, but I think the kind of the story of my life, if that's not too cheesy way of putting it, would be no, trying, to, trying to avoid being an adult, <laughs> having to be an adult, and then trying to go back to being a kid now. <laughs> Perfect. Well, because I was going to ask you, like, when would you have said to yourself, I'm a creator, I'm, a, I'm an, you know, instead of like, because I think a lot of us struggle to name that we are that creators you know it's like oh well I I like to draw but I'm not an artist yeah 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 words have power you're absolutely right um well for a long time I was writing under pseudonyms which I found really helped um both because it meant I had the freedom to just investigate stuff and I knew it wouldn't come back to bite me in the ass, you know. <laughs> no one's going to sort of say, oh, you wrote this thing here and it's, it's just shit, mate, <laughs> you know. So by having a, a pseudonym, that, was, that really helped me because then I was able to kind of play around a little bit. And then when I felt like I kind of got it, if that's the right term, then I felt relatively comfortable saying I'm a writer. Maybe that's just me. No, I think that's uh, pretty universal, actually. The thing about your work is that you, you know, you're, you say you're, you, you've, you're telling stories, you've got these clients, but you're not like just telling any stories, right? You're, you, you, you've got, you've gotten yourself into the position where you get to choose who you, whose stories you tell. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're not going to be telling, you're not going to be doing stories for like oil companies or, you know, Russian oligarchs, right? Mm -hmm. So Tell me a little bit about like, you know, projects of worth and like what your focus, how you, how you got that focus. Yeah. So 
as as you know, but obviously people listening won't know, um, I spent a lot of the last few years focusing on environmental issues um, because that's where my heart has taken me. Um, I've seen, I basically, I forced myself to see things I'd really rather not. um, And I forced myself to read things I'd really rather not. And because of that, I've, I've had a certain closeness to environmental problems and I think once you know, once you know what the damage that some people can cause is, then you can start to make better choices about who you work with, the projects you work on. And as you say, you know, I've I've tried to remain true to that to make sure that the, the people I collaborate with and the stories I tell always have a positive outcome, always have something that benefits either mankind or the environment. So yeah, a, a, a big project in my entire focus at the moment is I'm involved in a really big global charity project which is looking to do something I think is of incredible importance because there's so many amazing environmental stories and people out there but the problem is the people who hear those stories they're in, they tend to be in the environmental left anyway so you're right. talking to an echo chamber right so the project we're doing now is we're taking those really important stories and those really important people and then partnering them up with the best storytellers on the planet. So writers from TV shows, films, comics, from brands like Harry Potter, Game of Thrones, Batman, Gorillas in the Mist. And what we're doing is between them, taking that issue and turning it into a comic story. And those comic stories we put out online where people can quickly and easily engage with these points and then do something about it and also collected into an anthology that people can buy. And the idea is when people read those stories, they will learn more about a particular species or a particular issue, and they can do something, whether that's giving money to help the people who are solving the problem, signing a petition, which can bring um, pressure against businesses and governments whose practices are putting these species at risk, or of course they can do something themselves maybe an action like not mowing your lawn for or your yard uh, for you know a month or whatever it might be so yes that, that's a really big and very Im- important part of my life right now that's is the main reason why I look like I do but, right. uh, but I understand the importance of putting a face to the thing you know putting like I can I can sort of say I, I would like to help wildlife in Africa. I would like to, you know, stop poaching. But then you show me an actual elephant and tell me its story. And, and if I can help that elephant, like I, now I'm like, I really want to do that. And actually, that's something I one of my sort of life dreams is to go over and volunteer for one of the elephant sanctuaries mm. to help because I love them. I think they're magical. I couldn't agree with you more. And absolutely, one of our um, key contributors is Jenny Jinya, who's a really good uh, and a really passionate and wonderful uh, web cartoonist who's become, become quite friendly with um, over the course of the project. And she wrote a story called Little Mo that was launched in January, to kind of, which we used as a bit of a test case to see how people would, would react to these, uh, taking a, a big issue, but then focusing on, as you say, one character or a small selection of characters and it went incredibly well it it went viral she's between 40 and 50 million views 
in a few and that was with no marketing spend no charity support no celebrity support it's just the power of her art and her story and as you were saying if you can make it real to people and actually say look you know Heidi or the people at home this is what you can do you can actually stop this from ever happening again then I think you're doing something really powerful and we're very lucky that we're working with um a number of charities on the project so all of the stuff we're doing the output of it is permanent so for example if Greenpeace worked with businesses and governments to change the laws that's a permanent change unless you get a Trump who comes on and takes it out again but for the most part that's a permanent change um, and working with World Land Trust and if they go and buy a big section of land what happens is that's kept under international law so you won't get that change of government that then tries to sell the land from underneath the people mm. and they return the land to the locals who can then have stewardship over it and make sure it's free from human harm and in doing so save countless species yeah what's interesting is how how much um efforts like that are often viewed with suspicion because mm -hmm. people don't we're not wired to understand generosity in a way which is sad and horrible there, there's that family um that that there's a couple that buy that was buying up a bunch of land for sanctuary in patagonia mm. and were the locals kept thinking what are you doing you're trying to like everyone was against them until they just they just get, we're just trying to give it back to you we're just trying to make these land trusts and they yeah. couldn't like people could not conceive of anyone wanting to do that like yeah. why would someone just do something for the greater good it like doesn't make sense and like finally they've protected all this land but it's like it's sad that that's not our default thinking of, of course you want to do something for the greater good. Yeah, absolutely. And I've got to give World Land Trust and any number of the other charities who work to a lot of credit for that because they work closely with the local communities to make sure that they're aware what is happening and why in advance. So they're, they're very much uh, aligned to make sure that this isn't seen as a global North coming in, sweeping in and, Sure. trying to save their problems uh, so solve their problems because it's been proven time and time again if you get an outside entity to try and come in and say you know imagine i'm i'm, I'm british i come to your local neighborhood i walk over there and say oh look we need to change that that and that and then i yeah. you know, get lost you know at the end of the week how does that feel to you it, it, you know they're not you've not solved the problem it's not your it's not your your solution anymore right well, as, as an American, I'd say it's Fourth of July, and we already kicked you guys out once. We <laughs> let <laughs> yeah, you have it. We have enough for <laughs> But yeah, no, it is. It's like we've kind of got to get over the 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 white savior, the Western savior uh, um, thing. And I think that's what was missing in this Patagonia situation was they didn't because it was just one couple in their personal. Um, foundation, they didn't have something like the World Wildlife Trust behind them or the World Land Trust behind them going, hey, everyone, let's get on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, and, and I think that's what I've been very, very cognizant of with the project is to make sure that we have voices from across the planet. Um, and actually the solutions come from those people as well. So we're not just saying, okay, well, I've sat here in England and I've come up with the solution and it's X, Y, Z. We've been going to people who are in the countries who are actually living there and seeing this stuff day to day and saying to them, you, you tell me, tell me what, you know, if you had a 
bit of money and a bit of backing, a bit of support, what would you do? How would you save that species or that? And a lot of the time, um, it's reintroduction of other species because food chains are incredibly um, intricate, but beautifully balanced things. And sometimes by the reintroduction of one small species, you can save tens or hundreds of species. But unfortunately what happens, um, and I'm not trying to poke here, is people raise money for, I guess we can say the, the leaf of a problem. So like the puffin, for example, gets tens of millions of uh, donations and uh, scientific investment every year. But the sea around the, the islands that the puffins feed from is warming up. So they're, they're basically, their food source isn't swimming there anymore. And throwing money at the puffins is obviously a very, well, I wouldn't say it's a waste of money because of course I've never said it, but it's not the best use of money and time. If you can stop those food chains from breaking down in the first place, if you can look after the producers and the flora and the fauna in the smallest part of that food chain, then the, the top of the chain can look after itself. And um, if ever you get the chance, um, Isabella Tree uh, had a, has a book called Rewilding and her and Charlie Burrell run Nepa State in the, the UK. And there's, they've had some incredible results um, by the reintroduction of Tamworth pigs into their estate. And what they found is that they, they've got a wild farm that is producing far in excess of any of the, the more industrial farms of the same size as them. And also they're running safaris in the UK because they've got such incredible biodiversity. They've got species that haven't been seen for years and generations there. And the money they make is significantly increased compared to other farms and they have no outgoings. Everything just eats off the land. There's no veterinary bills. There's nothing. They just let all of their animals roam around and it's a working farm with no boundaries, no borders, no fences. Wow. Wow. It's incredible. Yeah, and uh, Isabella, I said, she wrote the book Rewilding, which was a, a best-selling book, which is fantastic. And all they did was they, well, all they, did, they did more than this, but sorry, I shouldn't try and say all they, they just did. just dumped but, a bucket of bugs and everything was fine. <laughs> yeah, it, they just left some bugs there. Uh, they found that the introduction of the Tamworth pig just revolutionized everything. So they had all of this land, all of this estate, and what these Tamworth pigs do is they stick their snouts in the floor and they destroy everything. They rip all the land up, they move all the waterways. And what they did is they, they just basically continually were doing like a job of plowing all of, the, all of the ground. And in doing so, they were uncovering all of the earthworms and stuff that the birds would feed on. They were also reoxygenating the soil and they were also changing the way that the, the water beds were working and the, and the water um, floodplains were working. So once they destroyed it all, it went back to as it should have been. And, and then they started finding that they were getting less diseases for their animals. Everything was happier. And the sound, honestly, Heidi, the sound you get when you go there, it is, it is almost deafening, like you're in a safari. But you're in England, you know, you're just a few miles away from London. And yeah, so... George Monbiot speaks about it a lot, and uh, and obviously Charlie and Izzy do too. By very tiny human interactions, you can actually save an incredible amount of animals and species. And often it is just as simple as 
we need the wolf here. But sometimes you can save entire species and tens of species with a few thousand dollars. See, and that's yeah. amazing to me. Um, I know that we've had a lot here with reintroducing the wolf as an example to, the, to Yellowstone. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I can also see that for obvious reasons, local um, livestock people, ranchers, are resistant to that. And I could see that with the, the Tamworth pigs, like if I had a manicured estate, I wouldn't necessarily be excited to let that happen. You know, not being able to, you know, lift head up and go, well, yes, but down here, the benefit is this, this, this. Yeah. So it's like, there's but, a shift in, in, in. I mean, I spoke to Charlie about it and he will tell anybody who listens, he was literally crapping himself. <laughs> Because he looks and, like you said, he saw it. He's like, my entire estate has been uh, has been destroyed in front of my eyes. Um, but you know, it works, and he is now. Well, he was already, I think, a relatively um, successful and well-known person. But now he is revered uh, across at least this country, if not across many countries, as being one of the champions of rewilding. Uh, and he and Izzy between them have just done incredible things. And that's how they're all of their species live. Wow. They just walk around and they are as natural as you can imagine. I say there's no vets, there's no food. They, have, they just let it do its thing. And it's, and it's incredible. It is absolutely incredible. When you, when you go there, you kind of feel like you've stepped back into some almost prehistoric time. And there's, I said, there's a noise and there's a, a closeness of the air that I never thought you could get in Britain. It is very much like being on a safari, but in England. I was going to say the word primordial keeps coming to mind. It just has that. Yeah. This is a rewilding Europe of which, um, and they are doing a fantastic job because what they're doing is they're showing how they want to rewild the world and what that will mean. Um, Charlie and a number of the people involved, they've worked with artists to, um, to visualize Wow. How they want it to be. And um, if we have more time and actually the, the listeners could actually see what I was showing, I could show the, the actual economic benefit as well. So it's not just an environmental benefit. There's, we're losing masses and masses of farmland. In about 30 to 40 years, a large percentage of our farmland will be unfarmed, unsustainable. They won't be able to farm it anymore because they've done such incredible and repeated industrial farming on it that the soil is becoming destroyed and ruined and unfertile. Yeah. So we have to do this. There's no, there's no second way, but we have to change the way that we're farming and our agriculture works. And doing it this way also makes it a very beautiful place to visit, which means you can then have a, a roaring... Uh, tourist trade in your own country which of course who wouldn't want that um to be able to go and just get in the car or public transport and see you know bears in your local environment wow. and it, yeah so i mean these guys are doing some fantastic thing they're just one of the uh, uh potential beneficiaries of this project um some are specifically targeted around a species like saving uh, a bird or or whatever it might be it might be a fish it might be a a land animal, animal, or there can be projects like this, which is buying an area and rewilding it. That's amazing. Absolutely. So yeah, rewilding Europe and rewilding Britain are just incredible. 
um, I would advocate and champion them to my dying day. I think that those guys, along with some of the other um, charities we're working with, people like uh, Stop Ecoside, when they're done, if we can help them, I mean, we collectively, not just the campaign, if we can help them do what they're planning to do, the world would be so much of a better place, so much more of a beautiful place as well. And whether you believe in climate change or not, some people don't, weirdly, it will just be better. And I think that's kind of where a lot of our stories are coming from, which is saying, you know, let's just build back better. Yeah, that's, I love that. Um, and yeah, I feel like there's, there's certain people we're just never, never going to reach. So if we can just do it and be like, see, look, it's better now. Absolutely. And in fact, actually, one of the stories that um, one of the stories I, that I'm writing for the uh, for the comic anthology um, is based around Extinction Rebellion and me saying that exact same thing. So I've, I've I and we have done a whole bunch of research and even the most ardent climate denier or person who is sitting against environmental change. They all agree whether they, they can verbalize or not, they all agree that the world has problems and the world needs to change. The difference generally I find is the people who can deal with that change and the people who are scared of that change. Yes. Because all of us have very, very busy lives. And I, I don't want to poke the finger at people who are scared of the future because it is, it's scary. You know, change is scary. But all I say to people is, people were scared when they introduced a seatbelt. People wouldn't dream of like driving without a seatbelt now, well not many would. People were scared when they changed to um, the mo from basically handwritten letters to the internet. You know, people were always going to be resisting change. Yeah. But change will happen. And with this one, at least we know the change is a good thing. Yes. Yes, it's been interesting to watch that resistance to change in myself and then, you know, kind of finding that com the comfort with the discomfort, you know, mm. just recognizing that, it's, that this is a good, a good place to be is to be like looking forward to change and that unknown and, um, you know, was watching, you know, like watching my dad as he aged and just freaking out about any change that happened and that you can see there's, they've done certain um studies about what mindsets and people are it's like genetically we're genetically predisposed to be more open to change or, or close to change and that aligns with some of our political parties and <laughs> which one's which Heidi I can't imagine which one you mean risk averse <laughs> uh, yes um so I mean one of the things that I think is that you you're not just espousing this stuff you 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 actually walk the walk um and I like very literally, because that's something that I, th I would just love about you is that you literally will pick up every single piece of trash you see when we're like walking <laughs> around. <laughs> yeah, I just, and this is a problem I've got to say, so I wouldn't say uh, espouses is a good thing for everybody. Um, I think that's something I've seen in my life is that when you're, when you're younger, your area of influence and responsibility tends to be yourself you're like mm -hmm. okay I'm responsible for myself and then as you get a bit older you're like okay I'm responsible for myself and my friends and that tends to be when you hit the teenage years yeah then when you get a bit older again you're like okay I'm responsible for myself my friends and perhaps my family or my loved ones you know and then it gets bigger and bigger and there came a point 
And it wasn't uh, for me. It wasn't like a like a light bulb moment. But there became a point where everywhere I looked, I felt that I had some responsibility. You know, and I'm not saying it's a good thing because it is quite it is it's quite a weight. But yeah. as you say, I, I I can't physically walk past a problem. <laughs> it can make it hard walking anywhere. <laughs> well, you've inspired me to like you know, whenever we go to the beach or whatever, I always make sure to take a bag with me now that I can collect trash in instead of just going, oh, there's a piece of trash. I don't have time to, to deal anything with it. You know, it's just sort of I love you. That's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. And yeah, and if, if not, only, not only are you doing a great thing by picking it up, but also you're sending a message to others. So that's a wonderful thing. And just yeah. to be clear, I am a hypocrite. There are plenty of things I do that are absolutely awful but I'm always trying to make sure I'm limiting those and doing more good things. I think it's like weight loss, really. It's like when you're on a diet and you've got all these things in front of you, like, oh, I shouldn't eat that, and I shouldn't eat that, I shouldn't eat that. All I'm doing is every year is just eating a little bit less crap. Yeah, yeah. Well, and can you tell me a little bit about the eco-bricking? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, I, I could always go get you one, but it's a bit downstairs, so I won't. But, yeah, so what you do with eco-bricking... Um, is I recycle or reuse almost everything that I get, almost. But there's always stuff that you just can't. So the idea of eco-bricking is to cut up those non-biodegradable, non-compostable, hard-to-recycle plastics, and you cut them up and you force them into a, a soda bottle. And what you do is use a stick or something else to ram it really tight, and I mean really tight, and when you get clean, dry plastic in there and you ram it really tight, it becomes solid like a brick. And you have to get to a certain weight um, before it can be used. But when you hit that weight and when it's absolutely solid from top to bottom, you can actually use those bricks to make houses and, uh, I don't know, playgrounds and garden beds and uh, statues and all sorts. So... Um, Back in my paddock here, I will be building myself a glamping kind of outside house, <laughs> entirely out of waste. That's amazing. I, yeah, you send, send me pictures when you get that. I will. There's some people who've done some absolutely fantastic things, but it's great because um, it won't cost me a penny. And I can, you know, I can build a relatively large house and it's there, it's permanent, and I know that none of that harmful stuff has entered the biosphere. And I've got a really cool, cheap house out of it, and I get to build it myself. So it, what you do is you put the bricks in and then use cob, which means that because it's cob, you can actually sort of mould those walls as you wish. And you can make this quite organic, strange uh, house that looks like something from Star Wars uh, in the Moss Eisley area, he says specifically. It's <laughs> not very Tatooine, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, that episode of Grand Designs. I know the I know about the Cobb House. Oh well, there you go. See, I should have uh, I should have asked earlier rather than just assuming. No, there it's it's amazing and fantastic, and I like I was struck with such envy looking at those that sort of the the fluidity of the walls and the the, the that you can just make it doesn't have to be a square house shape. You can have any shape you want, and it's just you know. Very exciting. Yeah, it is, because you just sit there and think, well, I've built the walls now. Um, the cob's still kind of wet. Oh, I might have put mine a, a bookshelf there. <laughs> yeah, I've got a bookshelf. 
it's, it's sort of a, it's a crazy kind of magic it is yeah absolutely yeah so yeah so that's that's kind of um yet another project I, i'm doing in between obviously writing the the tv series i'm working on at the moment and the comic strips i'm working on and the comic series and doing the charity project <laughs> so yeah uh, well, dear i need a break you, will you tell me more about your your sort of flagship graphic novel series um sure so um it, the, the main thing I'm working on in terms of kind of new brands at the moment um, is Chimera, which has been around for a number of years. Uh, yeah. And unfortunately, uh, Gary Kurtz, uh, the producer that um, I co-created with alongside Richard Baisley, unfortunately passed away. Um, so the project, broadly, we just didn't know what to do at first. Um, but when uh, Gary was uh, just a couple of weeks from passing away, he said, uh, he said to me when he was very unwell, you know, oh, please do make that happen, Paul. You know, I really want to see the chimera happen. But hopefully, as you understand, it was a, a quite an emotional time. And we oh. really want to make sure that not just we didn't just jump into the first potential deal that came came along after he passed away. We also want to make sure that the producers we felt would have a similar mindset and aptitude and honesty and integrity that he would have. Mm. And, you know, trying to find a producer like that in Hollywood, you know, <laughs> Oh, I'm joking. I'm only doing the old joke. Yeah. There's some lovely people in Hollywood. <laughs> I'll take Is that, that back when I met you? Is that like when, when you were over here at the embassy and is that when I met you? Is like when you were doing that? No, I was over with a UK trade delegation. So, um, because we met at the royal residence, didn't we? Yeah, not, not the, yeah. the embassy, not the royal residence. They're not royals here. Sorry, embassy. But we Apologies. do have our very own royals now. We're very excited about that. <laughs> yeah, well, we can have our cast-offs. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so actually that was that was a... So I was over with the British media delegation. So um, uh, people representing BBC Channel 4. Um, oh yeah, sorry. Actually, Carla, yeah, you're. It's a consulate, so we're both wrong. Not the embassy, not the royal residence. The consulate. <laughs> well, I was there as a guest. I wasn't paying attention to the signs. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and that was that, that. was a really nice trip, actually. That was when I used to do a little bit more for the government in terms of uh, pushing Britain to the forefront of innovation and also trying to make sure that that Britain actually listened to the rest of the world as well. Because sadly, we've often been in a position of being the people talking rather than the people listening. Oh, as an American, I can't relate to that at all. No, no, I know. <laughs> I hear you. No, you guys such are very well known. I'm sorry? I said we're such kind, gentle leaders who take, take on <laughs> all um, Well, I think this that's why I had such a hard time nailing down what you actually did. Mm. Because... You know, I was like, wait, he's doing this. He's doing that. He's got this other thing. I'm like, I don't know. Paul seems to do everything. I don't know when he sleeps. Yeah, we don't have kids. That makes a massive difference. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, broadly, I wouldn't. I, I, I'm going to quote Stephen Fry here, and that's not to make any comparison between him and myself. But people have said to Stephen, you know, are you a writer? Are you an actor? Are you a comedian? Are you a presenter? Are you a creator? And he said, I think he said something like, none of those, darling. <laughs> I write, I produce, I act, I create. 
I'm Stephen Fry. (laughs) And I'm not saying that I could pull off that line, but it's kind of similar for me. I, I, all I ever do, whether I'm working in websites or apps or games or comedy or whatever it might be, is I try and understand what I would like to hear or experience and then work backwards from there. So if, for example, I'm writing for a, a political satire show, what I would like to think about is I'm sitting there at home, either reading a newspaper, listening to the radio, watching TV, wherever my work might be. What would make me laugh? You know, what would make me just go, oh, that's nice. I enjoyed that. And it's the same, whether it's a website, a game, a comic, I just imagine what I would like to hear. Yeah. And so far, there's some people who agree with me. (laughs) Well, I ask about it because, or I ask about actually the Chimera is because um, there, I've been speaking, usually using this platform to talk more with writers and artists of color, um, Mm -hmm. really, you know, working in support of Black Lives Matter and, you know, trying to listen more to, to those stories and, when I was talking to my last group, my last week's group, I was talking about, you know, next week on, and I brought up you and all this, and it really dawned on me what the Chimeran is talking about mm-hmm. is so part of that. So I just wanted to ask about more like that, like the, your, was it, was it ever intended as a, as a racial commentary or were you just talking about humans and like, what, tell me about it. <laughs> yeah, so I probably should just explain a little bit about it just for the, the listeners. Um, so, yeah, Heidi, you're absolutely correct. It was always racial commentary. Um, so all of the characters in there are based upon historically relevant characters and things that really happened. But the story for the people listening is, or the, the premise for people listening is, it's projected into a into a, a near future. And there's been... 101,000 apocalypse stories. But there's not many pre-apocalypse stories. And that's what the Chimera is. It's mankind is, is standing on the precipice and in the future is nothing but bleak horizon ahead of them. The world is basically failing. Things, there's not enough food. There's not enough production to go around. People are suffering and they're desperate for a solution. And then within that world, a man comes up with the idea of creating a genetic bread for purpose workforce that can take the place of machinery and factories to actually grow the food and help mankind survive and hopefully come out the other end of this. And that the whole of the concept, it's who would you be if you were fighting for survival? You know, would you help your neighbor? Would you screw them over? Would you try and get every last bit of food and safety you can for your family at the at the basically the expense of somebody else but in it within that there is yeah as you say there is a definite sort of racial commentary in as much that the chimerans are based around a lot of different cultures and backgrounds that have traditionally been misused um and by misused i mean in in the term of the way which they used within the show not in real life of course so what we're what we're trying to do there is shine a light on some of the things that have happened and ask ourselves the hard questions so as a bit of an aside last week um there was in british soccer um they looked at the commentary that had been uh, broadcast over the last things or few years and they found that when somebody of color was on the ball the positive, affirmative stuff 
that they would usually say would be based upon physical aspects, their speed, their strength, mm. their aggression. And when it was a white player, it was usually their intelligence, the creativity, their footballing brain. And it's a lot of around the, the, the chimera is around those things that we've probably said ourselves a hundred times before without actually asking ourselves what actually, what that means and what that means to be on the other side of the fence. So yeah, so um, that's the basic principle behind Chimera. And if you want a bit more of the actually type stuff, the idea is that these Chimerians were bred to be tools for mankind, but like in the same way as the first person who invented the, the hammer or the knife, imagine that to be a tool. If somebody else picks it up, that can be a weapon. And that's the, the principle of the Chimerian. Very well put. I love it. And our people <laughs> as well. Yeah, I mean, I feel like generally you're just a guy doing good stuff for the planet. Well, I'm just, to, just doing whatever I can, but I think all of us are. And I, I'm very keen to that, that we don't try to put anyone on a pedestal because I think sometimes I think the problem is, is we look up to people like Sir David Attenborough and they're absolutely worthy of it, don't get me wrong. But the average person sees David Attenborough and thinks, I could, I can't do that. Same with Greta Thunberg, you know, they look at uh, Greta and they say, I, I, I can't do what she's doing. Whereas actually I'm looking to try and with the, the, the comic project that I was mentioning, try to show that heroes are always just, you know, a few doors down the road. And so actually, you know, all of us can be heroes. And as an example, people often vilify and attack landowners and farmers because of their use of herbicides, fungicides, insecticides, and the way that their agricultural practices are damaging the planet. But they're, they're, they're symptomatic of, of, the, of the wider way that industrial farming works. I don't think many farmers are thinking, oh, you know what I want to do? I want to kill some animals, you know, just, just for fun. So rather than finding heroes from media and uh, in celebrity culture, I'm keen that we say, look, you know, farmers and landowners out there, you guys, you guys could be the heroes. Single-handedly, you control as much land as many national corporates you do between you. You can single-handedly change the face of all the countries you live and work in. You guys could truly be heroes and you could be more profitable and economic and environmentally friendly at the same time. Well, I think that's the huge, that's the biggest piece is getting them to understand because at the, at the end of the day, a lot of them are just after the bottom line. So if I can have you understand, sort of, that's like the same thing we've been talking about here in Los Angeles. Like if I can have you understand that it costs us less to house the homeless people rather than all the programs that then are needed because we are turning our backs on them, like it financially makes sense. If you don't actually care about them, okay, fine. But look, it actually saves you money to do it this way. If I can get to them that way, you know, it's sort of the same, at the very same thing. Like if I can get to you, if I can get, if you can get to the farmers out of, out of uh, their, their pocketbook and their bank account. And then, the, you know, the caring is a bonus. Absolutely. And to be honest, the usual reason people care about the bottom line so much is because life is hard yeah. and everyone's looking to make their life easier. And when someone says, actually, Heidi, you know, I want you to change the way you live. You justify, I think, oh, I've only just got used to this. I can only just about manage what I'm doing now. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's finding those ways of saying, actually, we can make your life easier. It's going to be a good thing. And actually, it, and it's true. And, and don't try to pull the wool over people's eyes. Tell them when it's going to be hard and tell them when it's going to be easier. 
Do Allison or Carlo have any, any questions or thoughts you want to chime in with? How long have you been working on your bricks and how many would you say you have? I mean, I, I don't have a sense of quantity in either time measurement or physical quantity. So, yeah. So this is one of those strange and uh, misuse of the word ironic, but kind of ironic things that I started about two years ago and my production of bricks has gone markedly down because I've gradually becoming waste free. So I'm actually making it harder for myself. <laughs> but generally, yeah, a brick is a kind of roughly about this sort of size. And to give you an idea, that's for a normal household, that could be a week or two, actually probably a bit more, maybe about, about, about two to three weeks of trash in there. Um, I used to do one brick, which is slightly bigger than this, every three months, roughly. Wow. So um, I and we didn't throw our bin away for months because there was nothing in it. And now our, we just only have recycling bins, just don't bother with our... What we have in Britain is kind of we have one recycling bin which has a collection of different types of recyclables. And then we have uh, like a general uh, trash bin which just gets put into landfill or gets incinerated or gets thrown into the sea, sadly. Um, and that bin just sits there looking ugly now which is great because it either we've got lots of great systems in the uk now i don't know how many are in the us i know that TerraCycle is but we've got lots of really good uh, recycling systems that not only do they recycle hard to recycle stuff but they also raise money for charity in doing so because what they do is they they work with say a major biscuit manufacturer and they'll say if we give you back your biscuit wrappers will you give us some money for them and they say yes, because it means they've got a closed loop recycling their end, which means they, they reduce their, their costs. And it then the, the excess money just goes to charity. So, you know, we've anyway downstairs, there's always a massive bags from like crisp packets and biscuit wrappers and tins and stuff we collect from all the local people. I was going to say, it's kind of a great way to get your community involved. Um, and this is like the thing, Reboard, that I was sharing with you for my friends in Italy. They're trying to get an initiative to collect, have people collect the cigarette butts rather than throwing them on the ground. And they're taking the cigarette butts and turning them into surfboards. So, yes. you know, if, instead, of, instead of that stuff floating free in the ocean and killing fish, it's being used to play in the, on the ocean. Absolutely. And I expect you know, Heidi, I don't, I don't know about yourself, uh, Alison, but cigarette butts are one of the worst and most littered items. If, well, it is the most littered item, but one of the worst items because they obviously contain arsenic and they create these great big floating garbage patches in the oceans. And there's, you know, there's trillions of tons of them out there. And they turn to kind of this mushy, soupy texture. People think these, these great big garbage patches are like islands and you can walk on them, but they're not. It's much more like swimming through sludge. So all of the fish and the birds they can't help it. They're, they're, they're ingesting it because they have no choice. That's just the water there. And, um, you know, it's, I think it's like four or six times the size of the UK, the one that's in the North Atlantic. And it's just insane. It's getting bigger every year because there's about 1.2 trillion tons of extra waste added every year. That's the so one that just really... happy, happy Yay. story there. <laughs> well, that's the one that really got me. Like when I saw the footage of that, I just was like crying because I'm like that. I feel so powerless to do anything about that. And did I read that there was some uh, inventor in Sweden that had a thing that was going to go out there and like clean it? Or 
Yeah, so Boy and Slat has got um, a great big boom arm, the Ocean Cleanup Project. And what that does is it that can um, clean up hundreds of meters and then in, in, in the course of a day, miles of, uh, of, of waterway by basically filtering all of the rubbish and turning it into recycled plastic uh, sludge, basically. And Boyens does a fantastic job. I don't know him personally, but from all that I've read, there's he's his is one of the kind of the principal uh, top of the tree projects. There's also CVAC, which is another good one as well. Um, and those guys are doing fantastic things. So I would say, yes, you can probably feel powerless about what's out there now. But I think it's more important to use an analogy rather than worrying about clean, cleaning up the water that spilled out the bath to stop the taps. Right. So if you can stop adding to it and convince people to stop adding to it, that is the best thing we can do. Good. Hence reboard and, and eco-bricking and everything else. Yep. I, uh, I have a question. So we're, we're living in a time where uh, it's at least in the United States, it's very obvious that it's incredibly difficult to do to get people to do things that are in their self-interest, even when it's mildly inconvenient, like mm. wearing a mask. So how do you, I mean, it, with, the, with, the, with the marketing campaigns, uh, how, what is effective in getting people um, to agree to uh, a minor level of discomfort? or a minor level of inconvenience, or just a little bit of additional work, just or to do act, things a little bit better. Or to act in the community interest. Usually, and, it, and in it, I'm speaking in very broad terms here, it's, it's humanizing it. Helping people to see that the effect they have is, allows them to feel better about themselves, or worse about themselves if they don't do it. That has been proven time and time again with some of the environmental projects that we've had. Um, traditionally, uh, NGOs in the environmental sector have gone for the guilt angle. Like, Carla, if you do this, you're going to be killing this animal here. And if you do that, you're destroying that animal. And that's become far less impactful now, I've found. But if you can speak to communities and people and say, if you do this, you will be responsible for saving that animal you see a much better, greater rate of conversion. So in kind of my web world, in my web hat on here, we work for a lot of charities who have what's called conversion rate optimization, which is understanding how many people see a thing as compared to how many people do a thing. So you might get one in 10 actually perform an action. And you can see when you put things out there that it used to be like five years ago, or even just two years ago, if you made people feel bad enough they'll perform an action. But now it's the other way around. People have had so much guilt and so many body punches and heart punches to say, you know, we're all crap and we're killing the world. But actually now people want to know what they can do that's going to make them feel better. It's, I think it's, it's pretty fair to say. And again, people may disagree with it. I think it's time that we started moving away from the negativity around the environment, started moving towards the positivity. And in that, in those kind of moments where we realize that we can feel better about ourselves or even feel less guilty, if that's your, your thing, that's where we're going to win the next battle. That makes sense. I remember in, in speaking of the eighties, it was the water issues here in, in California 
And I got so scared by all that messaging, but it was effective. And I internalized it. And to this day, I cannot abide a tap running, you know, and I like turn, like scrub the dish, turn on the tap, just to rinse it, turn it off. Like, you know, I can't just leave it running while I'm washing things. And Carlo knows I'll come flying across the house and turn the water off on him when he's just doing like, what are you doing? Because it's been, but it was so internalized with me. And I feel like I'm killing fish. I'm doing horrible things to the world by doing that. Mm. Uh, and he doesn't necessarily have that same, like it didn't get hammered over his head when he was a cut kid because he lived in the East coast where they had plenty of water. Yeah. So, you know, it's that, that different cultural thing too. Well, can I just uh, briefly follow up on that, actually, because um, what you've just said has just reminded me of something that um, I work with uh, BAFTA Alba, which is a consortium in the UK looking to put sustainability at the heart of every broadcast we make. It's now um, being internationalised and it's uh, NBC have got it over here, over there, sorry, and any number of companies we're in talks with. I'm trying to remember who's actually in now, so I'm not going to name them in case I forget somebody. But as an example, I mentioned earlier about the, the seatbelts. Um, in Britain in the 80s, we had a a campaign, which was basically a kind of a, a bit of a fear campaign, which um, the campaign went something on the lines of clunk, click before you take that trip. And what you would do is you'd see people stepping into the car and they would pull, clunk and click. And it just basically, it, the idea was to make it, you know, remind people, noise, get noise with, mm-hmm. with action. And they thought that's that's it. And then in the UK, um, it, it, it went really well. But actually, the thing that that made the biggest difference is there was a uh, kind of, I guess, a, an unwritten law passed. And I believe it was actually written into contracts within the BBC. But I may be mis- mistaken on that one. That they said whenever in British shows or films, whenever you see somebody enter a car, they have to put their seat out, seatbelt on. If they do not do that, we will not broadcast it. Wow. And what that did, I, I spoke about it earlier, what that did is that made the process of, of taking a seatbelt and putting it on a subconscious choice. So mm-hmm. people have to consciously then choose not to do it. And that is what we're trying to do now with our TV shows and our films and our comics and our books and our radio shows is whenever we show somebody who can be in a situation they can make an environmentally good choice they do it so if you're growing up and seeing the shows that becomes your normal yeah i was gonna say it's normalizing that behavior and internalizing it at a subconscious level so yeah absolutely and then so you know for example if you watch um and i'm not recommending you do but if you watch some british soap operas now you'll see that they do things like they show food recycling you know, so when the family making food, they'll always have whoever the food cooker is or the preparer walk over and put the food in the food bin. Oh, and nice. We have a little uh, compost bin. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and if and if they're basically uh, taking the bins out, they will always go out there and... Put one recycling. EastEnders cares. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, EastEnders has been great, actually, because that's a BBC show. So they're always quite far ahead of the curve in terms of trying to put these things at the forefront but they're all good to be honest they're all doing some wonderful things and so yeah so Carla to go back to your question that's you know normalizing and making people the the kind of the champions of this of yeah. the change is is kind of the things that we found have worked so well but I'm in no way an authority on this 
I think you are, but okay. You're but, very kind. <laughs> I've just been on the Chimeran website. So what what's what stage are you? It sounds like you're pitching it around town. Are you trying to find a buyer or a production partner or something? We got the production partner ready, so that's happened. I haven't touched that website for a number of years, or we haven't. Um, we waited when uh, Gary passed because we didn't want to do anything too quickly. And then um, when the production partners came on board, we thought we're going to have to roll this into some sort of collaborative thing, a new collaborative website. But then COVID struck. So we've just been really sitting on our hands, waiting to see what the new world looks like. Um, so, yeah, look back in a few months and hopefully we'll we'll start to get a bit of a new web presence together, which you know represents the, the forward vision rather than what you're looking at, which was certainly... Uh, Gary and my own vision and Richard's as well. Mm. What I'd like to wrap up with then is mm -hmm. when, when you were that kid, you were that introverted and in, living in story world kid. Um, like what would you want that little like 13 year old boy to know about now? Like your path ahead? Like what would you tell him? Uh, there's so much to be honest. I think what I would say is just hang in there because, yeah, for, I won't lie. When I was young, I was I was massively unhappy. It was yeah. a horrible time. Um, Me too. Well, I think I think basically some of the best people I've ever met had some of the worst experiences when they're young. So hopefully you can look back on it and see it as being something that happened in the past rather than something you're still living with you now. Yeah, I mean, I think the eight, growing up in the 80s, it was a hard time to be a kid who didn't want to follow a traditional, you know, academic job, like that kind of thing. It's like it was a hard time to be, to stand out from the pack. It was a very much of a let's all belong, let's all be the same. Absolutely. Yeah, it's very, very much conformist. Yeah, and, and I agree. And I think if I was going to go back to being 13, I think most of my advice would be, just tempering my ambition because I think you were saying before you never know kind of what I do and you know I've, I've done production I've done comedy writing I've written for books and I've, I've done so many different types of things from acting to directing and the production as well tv radio and websites games apps comics everything um I would probably say when I first start out if I was doing it again when you first start out is Focus on one until you're good enough to go to the next one at a higher level because continuing to stop starting at the bottom of all of it is just debilitating. So make sure you get yourself to a level where you've got some credibility that you can then transfer into the next one. That is solid advice. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, and make friends. Make friends. That is, again, so in terms of, especially I found with comics and TV particularly, they're, they're quite a, an insular but very lovely group of people. And it is amazing if you can just be friendly with people and, and mean it, not, not, not just a friendship for a, the sake of a, um, trying to get somewhere, but actually have real friends in TV and comics. You will learn so much from what they do. You'll, you'll understand far better the processes. And then I could have saved myself at least five years if I just was friends with people in comics and TV rather than just throwing my scripts against a sort of like this brick wall of just meh that is submissions. Yes, it is all who you know. 
Mm, absolutely, but it's like like, like you, Heidi. You know, it's like you will know so many things now that you would never have known five, ten years ago. And if you could, if you could somehow take that experience, pull it out of your head and give it to somebody else, and they they're prepared to listen, which they always are. <laughs> that will just that will save them so much heartache because it is it is a punishing journey when you start out. Yes. Yeah. I mean, this is just the most ridiculous industry to try to be in and I think anything like that helps and you know just knowing that like you're gonna get your 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 heart and your butt handed to you on a regular basis in after you've done the most beautiful work from your soul so it's very punishing it's well Paul thank you so much for for staying up uh sharing all your knowledge with us and um, I just really appreciate your time and your uh, amazing brain and your heart. I'm sure none of those things is true, but the amazing brain and art. But um, thank you. No, I've really enjoyed it. And um, and today is Carla's and my 10th anniversary. So it's like to spend it with you. Yeah, congratulations, both of you. It feels like it's, it should be significant in some way. Yeah, you should stay home. Talk to me. We'll talk to you. We'll talk about saving the earth. Thank you. Have a lovely evening. You too. And, and happy anniversary to both of you. I know Carla's just jumped out, but yeah, happy anniversary to you guys. Love you lots. Love you too. Bye. And bye, Alison. Bye-bye. Next time on Hearthside Salons, Ellen Gerstein is everyone's aunt. She's played supporting characters in many of your favorite things. She startled her family by coming to acting later in life and going against the grain. As a student in Georgia in the 60s, she dealt with anti-Semitism and helped form Georgia Students for Human Rights, a black and white student alliance to address the racism she saw there. We'll talk about creating your life by imagining a more perfect world. Special thanks to our graphic and sonic designer, Joel Harris. Our theme music is by Lachey Swing. For more on our script coaching, online concept to pages writing courses, and writing retreats in Italy, again someday, check out pagecraftwriting.com, at pagecraftwriting on Instagram, and at pagecraftwrite on Twitter. I'm Heidi from Pagecraft. Thanks for listening, and stay well.